Amen. Thank you, JT and girls. In case you didn't know, that's uh, father and daughter singing there. And beautifully done. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Jason and other singers and musicians. Beautiful singing this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 7. We're going through the Gospel of John verse by verse. And uh, we want you to be a part of this study. You remember uh, this, this book promises that if you'll uh, uh, study it and apply it, that you will grow in your faith. You will grow in grace and, and uh, grow in your faith uh, along the journey. And so we're calling it a journey of faith through the Gospel of John. Well, we come to chapter 7 now. And uh, look at verses 1 and 2, if you would. It says, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would, uh, would not walk in Jewelry, which is a synonym for Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. Now so we can understand this chapter better, I want you to jump over to verses 37 through 39. This, this takes place somewhat in the middle of the chapter. Look at verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive for this Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified this whole chapter builds towards this pinnacle of verses 37 through 39 so the first part of the chapter is building towards that pinnacle the other last part of the chapter is coming away from that pinnacle and the idea of thirsting is, uh, is really a thought throughout this, this, uh, this chapter. Thirsting. There's different kinds of thirstings. You can thirst to know God, or you can thirst to know God better. David thirsted to know God better. If you look at your screen for a moment, uh, let me show you that verse. O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. David thirsted to know God better, to walk with him in more intimacy and so forth. So there is a thirst that God creates in the heart of an unbeliever. That's a thirst to know God, to have forgiveness of sin, uh, and to have Christ in his heart. But for the believer, there should be a thirst to know him better. And to walk with him more intimately. So that idea of thirst runs through this chapter more than anything else. It's the lack of thirst that runs through it. Well, with that said, pray with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together. Make it profitable, I pray, for each of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Verse 2 says it was the time of the... Uh, feast of tabernacles. That was one of the main three feasts of the Jewish people. Uh, 
the, you have the feast of Passover, the feast of Pentecost. By the way, today is uh, Pentecost on the Christian calendar, uh, 50 days. Pentecost means 50. 50 days after the resurrection, so today is Pentecost Sunday. But they celebrated Pentecost, of course, in a, in a different manner, not because of the coming of the Spirit. And uh, so they had Passover, Pentecost, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. There were seven feasts, but these were the main feasts. Any, any male person uh, had, had to attend these feasts if they lived within 20 miles. It was a requirement that people came from everywhere. Men, women, children, everyone coming to these feasts. Um, Josephus, the great historian, said that he felt like tabernacles, this particular feast, was the grandest of them all and the most joyous. And so uh, it was in this setting that Jesus made his great statement, if any man thirst, let him come unto me uh, and drink. Sometimes Feast of Tabernacles is called the Feast of Gathering. Sometimes it's called uh, the Feast of Shelters. They would build, it was like camping out. They would build small shelters up on rooftops or all around the city. And, uh, and they would stay in, in those uh, little shelters. And uh, families would stay there. And it was, a, it was a time of family being together and rejoicing in God's goodness. To, in particular... Uh, they were celebrating the harvest. It was, it was like a, it's, it was similar in a ways to our Thanksgiving. It was, uh, it was a time to thank the Lord for the harvest that had come in. But it was also a time to thank God for His supply meeting their needs, not only now, but back during the wilderness journey. So they thanked God for the manna. They were thanking God for the water that that God supplied coming out of the rock. And then also this feast looked forward to the blessings that would take place in the millennial kingdom. So all those things were mixed together in this celebration. One little part of it I want to tell you some detail about. There was a, there was a ritual uh, that had developed, and this took place all seven days of the feast, and they would meet in the, at the temple area, a great crowd. And a priest would hold up a golden picture and, uh, uh, to put water in, to pour water out of. He would hold it up and, and uh, the people would uh, chant uh, scripture verses from the Psalms. Like from between Psalm 113 and 119. Or 118 it is. And, uh, and they would quote these. But they, they didn't come empty-handed. The people who came would, in their left hand, they would bring a piece of fruit. This was supposed to symbolize they, God brought them to a land of, uh, uh, of abundance, of milk and honey. And, uh, and he had supplied their needs. In their right hand, they carried three branches. A branch from a palm tree... And a, a branch from a, uh, uh, oh, let's see, the second one. 
Anyway, three branches, um, and they, rep they represented, the three different branches represented the, the, the years uh, that they spent in the wilderness journey. So you see them, fruit in this hand, three branches in this hand, and then as they were chanting the psalms, they would wave the branches uh, with the rhythm of the chanting. So this would take start right there at the temple. Then they would go out of the temple and go to the pool of Siloam, and the priest would dip that golden pitcher down in the, in the water at the pool of Siloam, and then he would walk back, and they're, they're all walking with him, this great multitude walking with him. And they're uh, singing the psalms, chanting the psalms, and then back uh, into the temple. As he dips that water into the pool of Siloam, the people quote Isaiah 12, 3. With joy will you draw water from the wells of salvation. So you can see this is a, a great ritual of rejoicing. When they get back to the temple, the priest circles the altar. Again, they're chanting. Then he walks up the steps to the altar, holds the pitcher up, and pours out the water. And to thank God for that rock that was smitten in the wilderness. Now, they didn't know that that rock was Christ himself. And it was the Christ that gave them that water in the wilderness. And he himself is the water of life. He didn't know that. They were right, he was right there with them. And they did not know. But it's in that context then that he gives the great invitation uh, to come and drink uh, from him. Now, let's go back to our text now. And in uh, verse 1, that uh, after these things, that is after chapter 6... He walked in Galilee. Now, that doesn't mean he, he took strolls or walked for exercise. That means that he lived there. That's where he taught, and that's where he preached, and that's where he traveled in the area of Galilee. If you remember, that's up north uh, in the Holy Land. And uh, he stayed there. Now, it's been six months since chapter 6 when we get to chapter 7. So for, those, for that six months now, he's in, uh, he is in Galilee teaching, preaching. And he didn't go into Jewry, or as I said earlier, Judea, which is where Jerusalem is in the southern section of the Holy Land. Uh, for the Jews sought to kill him. By the way, in John, in this, in this context, and really often uses the term the Jews to refer to the Jewish leaders. He uses the term the people to refer to the Jewish people. So when he says the Jews sought to kill him, He's talking about the Jewish leaders. And then it says, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things... Show thyself to the world. And then John explains their attitude by adding the phrase, For neither did his brethren believe in him. Wow. Let's think about his brethren for a moment. Look up at your screen and there's two places in the scripture where they are named. Uh, Matthew 13 and Mark 6. The first one is James. And uh, James later 
becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And, uh, and he wrote the, the book of James uh, in the scripture. Uh, so he did become a believer later. But at this point, he's not a believer. And then Joseph, which is also called Joseph, he may have been the oldest. We don't know for sure, but uh, he's named apparently after his dad, Joseph. And then Simon. And then Jude, or Jude. He's called Judas in one place, Judah in another place, and Jude also. It's kind of like... Bill and Billy, or Bob and Bobby type of thing. All three of those names are pronunciations for the same person. And he's the one who wrote the book of Jude in the Bible. So he became a believer. Uh, we think that all his brothers became believers. But at this point in time, Jesus is way into his ministry. It's only six months from the cross. His brothers were still not believers. And then the, the scripture also said he has sisters, plural. We don't know how many, at least two, maybe more. Sisters. Now these are half-sisters and half-brothers. These were people who were born in the normal way of Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born. And so you see that G, uh, Mary, though she was a virgin when she conceived, and she was a virgin when Jesus was born, she did not remain a virgin her whole life. There was no perpetual uh, virginity for her, as some people teach. So, uh, here's the ones who speak to him. Now, listen to their, uh, what would we say, uh, sarcasm maybe. Uh, listen to how, how they try to instruct him on how to get the job done. And notice in, in verse 4, if thou doest these things... Um, so they're saying if you want to create a following if you want to become the Messiah the, to lead the nation of Israel you need to go on down there to Judea and Jerusalem and, and do some big miracles in front of everybody and, uh, uh, and create followers there's some people that still kind of think that way I mean, that's the way the world would think. Uh, you know, advertise, uh, advertise who you are and what you're doing and what you want to do and do it in a big way and, uh, you know. So uh, this was their advice to him. It's, it amazes me that at this point his brothers were not believers. Now, they did not think he was a deceiver or anything by any means. They wanted him to prove what a great person he was and that he could lead Israel. But somehow they still did not believe that he was who he was, God in the flesh. Can you imagine growing, I've often thought, can you imagine growing up in a home where your big brother is perfect? Not just seems perfect, but he really is perfect. He never sins. He never makes a mistake. You can imagine... You know, Joseph and Mary say, be, why don't you be more like Jesus and, and always have a good attitude and so forth. Um, so they grew up in that home. They knew he was good and genuine and true. They knew all of that. They just had not yet come to rest their faith in him as God's son and as the Messiah. Jesus responds in verse 6, and by the way, I've got to move through these verses quickly. We're covering a lot of ground today. And Jesus said unto them, uh, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. 
Jesus lived on a divine timetable. He only moved when the Father said move, and he was always doing the Father's will. His time, he said, my time hasn't come, but you can, what he's saying is you can go up the feast anytime you want to. Y'all go ahead, go ahead and have a good time at the feast, but my time has not come. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. The world hated Jesus because he pointed out their sin by his life and also with his words. They were a part of the world. At this point, they're part of the world. They were getting along fine with all the lost people and Christ rejectors and so forth. Um, and so he said, you go on down. Uh, go ye up unto the feast, he says in verse 8. I go not up yet unto the feast, for my time is not yet full, fully come. They wanted him to come up and make some great declaration. Now, he will do that. Not in the way they had in mind, but he will do that six months later when he goes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Now, I'm sure from what we learn of them in this verse, they would have had him ride on a white horse and uh, with big banners and so forth. And, uh, but Jesus didn't do it that way. His time was not yet to reveal himself in that manner. Nor was it his time for him to go up to this feast yet, but we'll see he does go up. And verse 9 says, when he had said these words unto them, he, still, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then when he also up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. So he didn't go up with big fanfare and pomp like his brothers wanted him to, but he did go up because that was part of the Father's plan. By the way, up, we think of up as going north, you know, on a calendar. But this is uh, going up on ground level. Jer Jerusalem, I mean, Judea area is higher than the Galilee area, so they went up in that sense to uh, Jerusalem. And then, and uh, verse 11 says, Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? The verb tense there is in the present tense, meaning continual action. They, they kept saying that. Uh, the Jews, that was the religious leaders, they kept saying, has anybody seen him? Where is he? You know, and so forth. They're looking for him constantly. Verse 12. And there was much murmuring among the people. Now notice how he uses, now you're talking about the people. They're Jews too. They're Jewish people. But again, John is using the phrase, the Jews, to refer to the leadership. He uses the term, the people, to refer to uh, the Jewish people themselves. The people, uh, there was uh, murmuring with the people concerning him. Some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, nay, but he deceiveth the people. He claims to be God. <clears throat> He's deceiving people with these claims. But the other people looking at his life and his miracles say, well, he has to be a good man. And so that argument still goes on today. It makes you think of Josh McDowell's Phrasing, phrasing that he made somewhat famous. When you look at Jesus, you have, to, you have to conclude that he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. There's really no other options. Uh, a man who claims to be God in the flesh may be lying. Or he may be convinced himself and he's a lunatic.
Or if he is what he says he is, then he is truly Lord of creation. And of course, that's the case. People have to make that decision on their own. They can't. It's illogical to say he was a good man and a good teacher. Because a good man and a good teacher wouldn't claim to be God. Unless he was God. That's the logic behind Josh McDowell's argument there. Look at verse 13. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. So the people were afraid of the Jewish leadership because many of them knew that uh, they were trying to kill him and they didn't want to get in trouble themselves. Now about uh, the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and talked. Now remember the feast lasts a week. Jesus about midweek, he goes into the temple and begins to teach. He came privately, secret, secretively and without uh, uh, open fanfare. He comes into the city and now he begins to teach in the middle of the week. And, uh, and verse 15 says, And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Um, again, we have the term the Jews. So here's the Jewish leadership. They're saying, he didn't go to our schools. How does he know all of this stuff? They, they thought there was two ways to have knowledge. Uh, to be educated in school or to be self-taught. Neither one of those were true of Jesus. He was God-taught. And that's how he answers them. Uh, in verse 15, they say, Having never learned, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Now he rebukes them by saying, If any man will do his will, that is, God the Father's will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God, or whether I speak of myself as a human. He's saying the reason you don't understand my words and follow my words is because you don't yield to the Father. You're not doing the Father's will. By the way, this is important to us too as, as believers because um, the reason we don't learn as much as we should is because we're not doing what we already know to do. An attitude of, of willingness to obey and obedience is the attitude that Let's us learn more and take more in. We'll know the doctrine if you're willing to do it. God will let you know in on it. The same is true about His will for believers when they're trying to determine what's God's will. If you're willing to do His will completely and fully, He'll let you know what it is when the time is right. And then verse 18 says, He that speaketh of him self seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, that is the Father, of course. The same is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. Now he exposes some hypocrisy among the Jewish leaders. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keepeth the law. <laughs> now that would have been a slap in the face of the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders. He says... You talk about it all the time, but you do not keep the law. And then he says, why do you go about to kill me? The law says, thou shalt not kill. Well, that's what they want to do to him right now. 
And so they are not obeying the law even in that, in that one point. And the people answered and said, Hast thou a devil who goeth about to kill thee? Now, not only do we have the Jews, but we have two groups of the, the people, Jewish people. Some were the people from Judea. And they knew that in the past, the Jews had talked about killing Jesus. That's the reason they didn't want to say anything openly about him. But then you had people who came from out of town, I mean, from pretty long distances, uh, hundreds of miles, but all the people from Galilee traveled 90 or 100 miles. And uh, they haven't heard all the talk about killing Jesus. That's the, uh, uh, you know, that's the talk of town coming from the Pharisees. So some, someone of the people said, you must have a demon or a devil. No one's trying to kill you. What do you mean by this? And of course, that's not the only time the crowd accused Jesus of having a demon. Jesus answered and said unto him, I have done one work, and you all marvel. Now Jesus at this point had done many, many, many miracles. But the one miracle he's referring to is the healing of the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. You remember that back in chapter 5. And this man had been crippled 38 years. And Jesus healed him and made him completely whole. And that's when they decided to kill Jesus because he broke the Sabbath. Now watch him point out their hypocrisy. Verse 22, Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. It actually started with Abraham, of course. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. Now the law in Leviticus chapter 12 said the, every male was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, if you were born on a day where the eighth day fell on the Sabbath, you weren't supposed to do anything like that on the Sabbath. But in this case, they did. Notice uh, verse 23. If a man on the Sabbath day receiveth circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every wit or completely whole on the Sabbath day? So he says, look at your hypocrisy. You say you make an exception for, on the Sabbath for a minor surgery of circumcision. But you won't make an exception for the healing of somebody who's been uh, sick for 38 years and I made him completely whole. Don't you see the hypocrisy in that? Uh, of course. And then he says to them, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Don't judge according to your own uh, preconceived ideas, your own human doctrine built around the law of God, but judge truthfully in truth and righteousness. Then said some of them, uh, of Jerusalem is not this he whom they seek to kill now earlier on there was some that didn't know that that they sought to kill him but he pointed out these were people from Jerusalem they knew it so now they're saying 
they sought to kill him, and, and here he is teaching in the temple. Have the leaders changed their mind about him? Notice now, we've got to read through them quickly. But lo, verse 26, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit, we know this man, whence he is, or where he came from. But when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Now the Jews had an understanding, though misguided, that Jesus would appear to them suddenly. And that, uh, or not Jesus, the, the, the Christ, who we know, of course, was Jesus. But the Messiah would appear to them suddenly. They knew he would be born in Bethlehem as well. So they're saying, we know this man. He comes from Nazareth, not Bethlehem. And he grew up up there, and, and we, um, he didn't come on the scene suddenly like we think he should. Again, it's preconceived, misguided information that people had concerning the Messiah. And so he says, uh, we know uh, where he's from and, uh, and who he is. Then cried Jesus, look at verse 28, in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. Now, when he says, ye both know me, it sounds like a statement when we first read it. But in chapter 8, verse 19, he's going to say to the same crowd... You do not know me, and you do not know the Father. He's simply here repeating what they're thinking and what they just said prior to that. You, they said, we know you. He said, you know me? With a question mark. You, you know me and where I came from? You don't know. I came down from the Father, and you don't know him. That's the idea of the verse could be put in a question form. Do you really know me? That's the thought here. But then in verse 29 he says, But I know him, that is the Father, for I am from him, and he has sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. Even in all the fussing, fighting, confusion over who he was and the plot to kill him, Jesus was still in control. And even in our busy, crazy world today, Jesus is still in control. He's a good shepherd. He takes good care of his sheep. Draw up close to the shepherd and let him take care of you. So nobody laid hands on him because his time was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than, than uh, uh, these which this man hath done? I mean, that's pretty logical. If, you, if you're looking at miracles for a sign, he did, he did all kinds of miracles. And logically, the people thought he must be the Christ. You can't do any more miracles than he has done. And many believed on him. And, uh, and then, verse 32, the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Now, the word officers there, that's not a... Greek, I mean, it's not a Roman officer. Rome, of course, was in charge, but they let Jerusalem t 
take care of their, they let the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees take care of the religious uh, business. And so they had a set of officers, you might call them temple officers. And that's who they sent to arrest Jesus. The word take him means to arrest him. And so they went, apparently, in verse 33, then said Jesus unto them. Apparently, he's speaking to the arresting officers. Yet a little while am I with you, and then I shall go to him that sent me. Maybe he was saying it like this. You've got a great opportunity right now. I'm with you. You're listening to me teach and preach. I won't be with you much longer. Better take advantage of this opportunity. And he says, then he says, I'm going to him who sent me. Ye shall seek me and shall not find me. And where I am, there you cannot come. Now, Jesus would elaborate on this a little more in chapter 8. He would say, where I'm going, you cannot come because you are in your sin. And if you don't come to me, you're going to die in your sin. The place he's going to is back to heaven, back to the Father, back to the one who sent him. And it's going to take place in about six months. At this point in time, we're about six months from the cross, the resurrection, and then the ascension of Jesus back into heaven to sit on the right hand of the Father. And so that's what he's talking about. But apparently these guards go back and tell the Jewish leaders what he said. Look at verse 30, uh, uh, 35. Then said the Jews among themselves. Again, this would be the Jewish leaders. Whether he go, what, what we shall, that we shall not find him. They're, they're re-saying his words. What did that mean? Will he go into the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? You know, some of the Jews were still scattered among the Gentiles. He said, will, will he go there? <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, so they're trying to figure out what this all means. Verse 36, What manner of saying is this, that he said, Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me. And whether I go, there ye cannot come. So they were confused by it again. Now this brings us to verse 37 and the pinnacle of this chapter. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood... And cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now, I explained to you those, those days of pouring the water, getting the water from Siloam, pouring it out. You've got your three branches in one hand. You're waving those branches. You're carrying a piece of fruit in the other hand as a symbol of thanksgiving to God. The last day, though the seventh day, now some people think this would be the eighth day, uh, but uh, most scholars believe it would be the seventh day because that was the last day of this particular part of the feast. So the, so the seventh day, it was a little different. They started out the same way. They were still chanting their hymns. They were still waving their branches and carrying their fruit. By the way, in the video, you won't see this part, but you'll see people holding branches. If you didn't know what was going on, you didn't know that that was a part of the Feast of Tabernacle, you wonder, why are those people... Some of them carrying branches in their hand. So uh, they wave their branches. The priest goes to the pool of Siloam. He comes back. They quote that. Uh, they quote 
Isaiah 12, 3 again. Uh, we shall draw uh, water out of the wells of salvation. And it's just beautiful. The whole ceremony is beautiful. When they get back, though, to the temple, now instead of marching around the altar one time, they, the priests march around the altar seven times, just like around the walls of Jericho. Seven times. And then he comes up on the, uh, on the steps to the altar. And now this is the last part of the ceremony. He holds the golden pitcher up high like this. <clears throat> and the people shout, higher, higher. They do it with great joy. And this is the height of their peak of their uh, festivities. Higher. And he reaches a little higher and a little higher. And finally he pours that water out. And Jesus cries, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. For he that believeth on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What a scene that was. Now our video we're going to watch in a moment doesn't put all of that in there. And I wish they had Jesus speaking a little louder and more distinctly when he said, If any man thirsts, let him come to me. But it's still well done and beautiful. Let me say to you believers, Are you thirsty to know him better? You want to live a little closer to him? If you're not thirsty for that, then say, Lord, create in me a thirst to know you better, to love you more and to walk with you in great intimacy. Well, let's watch this six-minute video. Let's watch it together. It may have happened something like this. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee. He did not want to travel in Judea because the Jewish authorities there were wanting to kill him. The time for the festival of shelters was near, so Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave this place and go to Judea so that your followers will see the things that you're doing. People don't hide what they're doing if they want to be well known. Since you are doing these things, let the whole world know about you. Not even his brothers believed in him. The right time for me has not yet come. Any time is right for you. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I keep telling it that its ways are bad. You go on to the festival. I am not going to this festival. Because the right time has not come for me. He said this and then stayed on in Galilee. After his brothers had gone to the festival, Jesus also went. However, he did not go openly, but secretly. The Jewish authorities were looking for him at the festival. Where is he? They asked. There was much whispering about him in the crowd. He is a good man, some people said. No, others said. He fools the people. But no one talked about him openly because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. The festival was nearly half over when Jesus went to the temple and began teaching. The Jewish authorities were greatly surprised. How does this man know so much when he's never been to school? 
What I teach is not my own teaching, but it comes from God who sent me. Whoever is willing to do what God wants will know whether what I teach comes from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Those who speak on their own authority are trying to gain glory for themselves. But he who wants glory for the one who sent him is honest, and there is nothing false in him. Moses gave you the law, didn't he? But not one of you obeys the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You have a demon in you. Who is trying to kill you? I performed one miracle. And you were all surprised. Moses ordered you to circumcise your sons. Although it was not Moses, but your ancestors who started it. And so you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. If a boy is circumcised on the Sabbath so that Moses' law is not broken, why are you angry with me? Because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath. Stop judging by external standards and judge by true standards. Some of the people of Jerusalem said, isn't this the man the authorities are trying to kill? Look, he is talking in public and they say nothing against him. Can it be that they really know that he is the Messiah? But when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. And we all know where this man comes from. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said in a loud voice, Do you really know me? And know where I am from? I have not come on my own authority. He who sent me, however, is truthful. You do not know him, but I know him. Because I come from him. And he sent me. Then they tried to seize him. because his hour had not yet come. But many in the crowd believed in him. When the Messiah comes, will he perform more miracles than this man has? <laughs> the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things about Jesus. So they and the chief priests sent some guards to arrest him. I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I shall go away to him who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. Because you cannot go where I will be. The Jewish authorities said among themselves, where is he about to go so that we shall not find him? Will he go to the Greek cities where our people live and teach the Greeks? He says that we will look for him but will not find him, and that we cannot go where he will be. What does he mean? On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, Whoever is thirsty should come to me, and whoever believes in me should drink. As the scripture says, streams of life-giving water will pour out from his side. 
Jesus said this about the Spirit, which those who believed in him were going to receive. At that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not been raised to glory. Uh, are you thirsty? Thirsty to know God? Jesus said to the Pharisees, I'm going away to him that sent me, and you cannot come to where I am going. None of us can go to where Jesus went unless we've been cleansed in the blood of Christ and been made new and become a part of God's family through faith in Christ. Have you put your faith in Christ? Are you hungry to know God? To know God. To know the forgiveness of sin. And to know that He is with you and will never leave you. To know that heaven is your home. You can know that. The promise is, if we believe, we have that moment, eternal life. But believing is more than just thinking, believing the facts. It means we rest our faith on Christ and Christ alone for salvation. You can do that right now, wherever you are. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. And if you really mean it, and you want to know God through Christ, and you want forgiveness of sin, and you want to go to where Christ is one day, then pray this prayer with me. Wherever you are, say, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I have sinned. I'm a sinner. And I need forgiveness. I believe you died on the cross for me and rose again from the dead. And right now, I believe on you. I rest my faith on you. I call on you as my Lord and Savior. Come into my life and forgive my sin like you promised. Thank you for coming in like you promised. Help me to live for you now. now if you prayed that prayer with me and you really meant it, we'd like to hear from you. You can call and leave a message here at the church, or you can, uh, uh, you can write us a note. If you call and leave a message, we'll call you back, and we'd love to send you some literature and help you with any questions you may have. We're happy for you. God bless you.